Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick. And I'm Rick Carrillo, and this is Salute Talks. Today we have a packed studio. We're speaking with five medical professionals who are using their unique medical and professional backgrounds to develop a holistic model towards those patients in cancer remission, specifically addressing the patient's mind, body, and spirit. This conversation brings to light the critical difference between the term individualized and specialized care, which can mean the difference between the type of attention a patient may or may not receive. Their latest research study is in its first year of inception, but they have already seen betterment in the health outlook of cancer survivors. Without trying to butcher anybody's names, I'll let everybody kind of introduce themselves, starting on my left. Daniel Hughes, PhD, Assistant Professor of Research, Institute for Health Promotion Research. Alex Ortiz, Chair and Professor from the Department of Physical Therapy at UT Health San Antonio. Karina Zamora, MS candidate at UT Health School of Public Health and project coordinator here at IHPR. Angelica Lapatota, I'm an intern at UTSA and I'm also a coordinator. Fantastic. So to kind of start things off and to kind of get our audiences and listeners up to speed, I'd like to open the floor to really talk about something um, with regard to um, terminology. You know, in the healthcare, um, whether it's layman's or whether it's medical terminology, there's a lot of words that get thrown around that feel synonymous, but sometimes they're not. When it comes to the concept of specialized or individualized care, you know, what is something that we should be, I guess, training or, or teaching our audiences to understand why there's a difference? There is a difference. There's overlap, as you mentioned. The way that um, the view is starting to take shape is that uh, individualized medicine is really for the individual, uh, tailored to the individual, and more of a holistic, broad approach. Western medicine tends to be very, very siloed, and Western medicine is very, very good about specialization. So within the individualization, if there's a need for an individual to go to a specialist and be taken care of at a very deep, intense level, then that's where specialization comes in. Where we're coming from is more of an individualized approach where we're looking at the individual as a whole instead of segments. And our approach is to really treat the individual as a whole, knowing that the individual is in fact an individual. And the components that make that individual, body, mind, and spirit, are also different with each individual. Well, the other thing is that I think that the medical field have been taken evidence-based medicine too seriously. And although I'm not saying that is not something that we should consider, but most of our decisions are made based on evidence that group specific amount of population, specific amount of people into a treatment or approach to treat a disease or perform an intervention. If we look at the evidence, um, we have a lack of underrepresented minorities being part of those studies. So in true, we're trying to fit like a cookie cutter approach, everybody into the same type uh, of evidence. We will be providing to that patient uh, what the average of the data shows instead of thinking about that individual as a single person and including that person's feedback into the intervention or or the treatment and that's where i think individualized medicine and care comes into play that we should consider that person as a single entity and try to find out what is the best approach that actually works for that person and not try to fit that person to a model that should fit 
the whole population. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point because, you know, when we think about the concept of, of equity, um, it's the idea of creating an even playing field for, for access, whether it's access to healthcare, whether it's access to resources. Crane and Angelica, in regards to your current education and uh, training, is health inequity being addressed in the classroom? I definitely think, at least with the more recent generation of healthcare professionals, that you see uh, an emphasis on like social determinants of health, as well as like other things that are involved with health equity, uh, legislation, um, environmental presence, and uh, things that wouldn't have been considered healthcare like maybe like 50 years ago, right. I think, are being talked about more and utilized in healthcare. Like, how are you going to reach these people that weren't reached before, and what tools do you need to focus on? I agree. Um, I feel like in our schoolhouses, we're definitely learning to individualize things. Um, my background in my education is uh, exercise physiology. And one thing that we really focus on is individualizing that exercise. Not every person is going to have the same abilities and the same capabilities, the same access to things. The most efficient way to get to help someone get healthy is by individualizing it to their body type, what they need for themselves, what they have access to. And I want to build on that, especially with Dr. Ortiz said just a minute ago. And that is that one of the things that we see, especially with cancer survivors and the participants that we've seen in our labs that we've actually come up with individualized exercise programs for when they come in one day and they come in the next day they can be completely different people so it's not like you come up with a program at the beginning and then that's it you wait six months and they come back and one other point about equity and equality when you talk about disparities one of the things that we need we have disparities in this country especially for you know underrepresented groups latinos especially and it's not like we need to give an equal attention to all where we raise the bar equally because there's still the disparities. Some groups need more than other groups. If we're really going to get equity, we need to understand that more people, more groups need more of an intervention, and some may need less. So I'll play devil's advocate because what I'm hearing is that when we start to focus on more of a individual approach, that feels like we're it begets needing more resources, more staff, more research. And in a way, it feels like it would delay per, the certain processes that are in place right now. Yes, that's really a very, very critical point. One of the things we're trying to do with this particular study, especially in the next step, is that you've got to make that automated and you've got to make it simple and you've got to make it cost effective because if it does require resources, it's never going to get implemented. Because unfortunately, it's still about the money. And if you're tying up primary care physicians or oncologists with processes that they should be going through to individualize medicine, but it's cumbersome in terms of their time especially, it'll never work. So some might say that the healthcare industry is already doing its job, causing more harm than good, right? Um, But what are the dangers of maintaining this kind of cookie-cutter status quo that we have currently? Well, from a clinician as a physical therapist, I can tell you that uh, in the clinic, when we talk about resources, always people think about money, but it's not all about money. I think that the the main resource to make individualized care, individualized medicine is, is time. We need to educate our patients. Education takes time. 
we need to educate not only by providing the information, we need to make sure that our patients and family, in mainly in our uh, Hispanic uh, Latin culture, the family is involved and the family also understand. I think that's a really good point, and I would also say that it's especially true, in my experience, with the older patients, older Hispanic patients. You really have to educate the whole family, you, and especially in you know medical terminology and interventions and so forth. And I think that um, especially with interventions in uh, sensitive populations or populations who uh, experience more health disparities, uh, once you do the intervention, you can start proving the feasibility of it, more people are going to be more willing to implement those interventions. And if you if you can hit like the poorest of the poor, the people who experience like the highest disparities, how easy will it be to implement the interventions on other populations, other populations who don't experience as high disparities? And so if you can dedicate the time now, it'll make it easier in the future. Right. And I think, you know, with education, you offset that challenge of access because, you know, there's a lot of underserved populations who don't have access to health care or just don't understand the resources that are available to them to yeah. get access and to health And I've seen it, it like a trust, too, in the health care system and that cultural incongruence. You know, from a cultural standpoint, you are going to have different individuals treat health care differently. You know, you know, personally, from, from thinking it from a Latino perspective, I mean, it is a family process to go see the doctor with regard to gaining trust from the physician. The physician has to be willing to hear the story of why the patient is here. It's not just, oh, I came because I feel sick or I have a headache or I've been having this issue. It's, a, it's an entire story that will involve different parts of their life, specifically their family. One of the things that we're trying to do here, quite frankly, we're really trying to change the paradigm of how cancer survivorship is treated for all in terms of addressing the whole individual, body, mind, and spirit. Not just one slice, not just body, not just mind, not just diet, but everything. What we're really doing here that I think is very important is we're trying to, first of all, prove the feasibility of such an approach, and we're going to capture the cost. One of the things that I'm very passionate about, one of the things we have to understand is that we lose a lot of precision when we analyze group statistics, Every person is different. Every person is their own case study. Every person starts off with their own individual baseline. We're looking at individuals, and we're going to plot individual progress for each outcome variable, and we're going to automate the process so we'll know what the impact was for that individual that's lost in a group average. Because the goal here is any cancer survivor that wants to get the benefit of our technology will walk through the door irregardless of cancer diagnosis, stage of diagnosis, treatment history, and we will be able to give them, based on our tools and our knowledge, an opportunity to maximize their quality of life. This holistic approach from, from my part in the project, which is the, the physical component, is first bringing that person um, mind, body, spirit into on their own health not that they need to rely on me to get better i will give them the tools i will give them the education and through a telemedicine platform even though they can be in the texas mexico border and can feel that connection with me as a uh, online web-based supervisor of their health so they will be educated and they will 
be in charge of their own health, of their exercise program, on their own diet, on their own nutrition and, and physical activity. So using that idea of ownership in one's health, how is your study promoting that kind of mindset amongst your patients? Well, part of the things that we're going to do after doing all the typical clinical assessment and doing the education, we are planning to do an individualized um, prescription that will entail physical activity, will entail nutrition, exercise, and and so on, meditation, and other different strategies. But then we're going to follow up them through a telemedicine platform, And through this telemedicine platform, they will be able to do some chat sessions. They can request a video uh, call with the healthcare provider. Um, They will be able to, when they do the exercises and they check that they have done it, I can see their compliance. So I will be able to monitor if these people are doing or not the exercise and we can follow up. Making feel these patients to, to have a connection with us, even though they could be miles apart, making it unfeasible to show up every day or even three times a week for, for exercise. We hope to accomplish that ownership of, of their health. Which, which feels about right in this type of day and age where people love accessibility to information, right? So it kind of feels like that's a natural evolution for something like healthcare, where it becomes something where it's tangible in your hands. To use an anecdote from Anti-Cancer Living, which Dr. Hughes was so kind to give to us, um, several cancer survivors were talking about their experience with their diagnosis, and you would have this life-changing diagnosis, and the doctors will tell you, like, we'll worry about everything, go home, be easy on yourself, because you're going through a hard time. And so being told that is kind of being told, you can't do anything about this, so go home, treat yourself because you're going through a hard time. And allowing people who have this life-changing diagnosis to do something that can actually impact either the likelihood of reoccurrence or how the the actual health outcome will be once they go through treatment, uh, it, it's like, it's encouraging. It's encouraging to be told you can do something about this. We're going to give you these tools, but you are going to have to use these tools. You you are going to be changing your own life through this this intervention. Yeah, without getting too metaphysical, I mean, I think the, the body has a tendency to to want to be healthy, you know, whether it's finding a way to heal itself or finding a way to repair itself. You know, or if you look at our DNA, our, our cell construct, I mean, we are designed to be reparative to a certain degree. And I think what's overlooked a lot in, in healthcare, from from my personal experience, has been um, a disengagement with the idea of how psychology really plays to the individual's healing. I mean, it feels like it should be at that moment. Say, let's let's talk about a plan for you. Let's talk about how we can get you to the next level of starting your healing. And that's that's the approach we really want to take. We definitely want to um, inspire a positive feeling about this. Yes, the doctor has told them something devastating, but we don't want our cancer patients to think that this is uh, a a death sentence. Often they get told by these doctors that they have cancer and immediately they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. And that's not the approach we want them to take. We want them to step back and say, yes, I've gotten this diagnosis. This is the time for me to make a change. This is a time, this is a turning point in my life where I can be healthier and I can prevent this from happening in the future. Um, Once I hit remission, I can survive this. So we we wanna turn that mindset around. Instead of people being fearful, they take this moment to say, to reflect 
and to think of ways that they could be healthier. Yeah, one point I want to make, uh, the Anti-Cancer Living Book, Dr. Lorenzo Cohen, one of my mentors at MD Anderson, uh, told, told me and says in the book as well that he's had a lot of his uh, patients, participants come up and say, you know, cancer was the best thing that happened to me. I'm, you know, taking control of my health. I feel better now than I did. I sleep better. I've looked at things different. I've gotten rid of toxic relationships. I've got a social support network. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of interesting how that can be turned around depending on how it's approached. That's one of the things that we have here is heterogeneity, variability. You need that variability to really understand the whole spectrum. To really understand the whole spectrum, we need representation. Right. I'm hoping that we'll get a lot of Latinos in our walk through the doors. I think we're going to have to actively recruit Latinos to get them in the doors because we just put signs up. I think we'll get mostly what we see now, the self-selection. Right. So I think one of the points we need to get is we need to get recruit our people to come in. So why is it that Latinos are so underrepresented in these trials? I think there's a couple of things going on myself, having tried to get research, and the whole focus of my research at this point has been with uh, Mexican-American breast cancer virus. Number one is a distrust in the system. Number two is time. A lot of our people are busy just making ends meet. And uh, the other, I think the real big factor to me is just really that cultural congruence thing. And, and I think it's important that a large percentage of the researchers here working on this project are Latinos, because I, I want to see someone who looks like myself when I'm participating in something actively relevant to me or to my health. And even then, like Latinos experience higher rates of cancer mortality, and we may or may not need different kinds of treatment, different kinds of uh, interventions. And um, who knows, maybe encouraging Latinos to go into uh, MDs, PhDs, and going into research themselves may be a way to combat cancer mortality in Latinos. You know, it, there's a whole slew of factors that can play into preventing cancer in the future, especially for Latinos. It sounds like it's a lesson of resilience. Despite the odds, despite challenges, resilience is possible. You know, and it's, it's something where it's like a self-efficacy, if you will, yeah. right? This program is teaching mm-hmm. individuals yeah, that yeah. why self-efficacy has an impact on their well-being. Yeah, yeah. Well said. And another thing is that sometimes we tend to think that health-related quality of life is just for the individual. But if you add individuals with health-related quality of life, you end up with good societal uh, health-related quality of life. Uh, another thing we do um, with perpetuating these he- healthy habits is um, we're also normalizing these activities. So instead of when we see someone jogging down the street, you know, what are they doing? Is something wrong with them? Um, we're, we're looking at that person and we actually look up to them and we say, okay, well, maybe later today I'm going to do that. So when we start um, creating good habits, it starts affecting the entire community. And then we talk to one another and we start following each other. We start role modeling each other. And that's going to cause uh, a, a greater health benefit as well. Uh, on top of that, just breaking generational curses. I know that uh, there's so many families who are a hospital visit away from just going under the poverty line and losing their house, just being put under such insane financial strain and all of the numbers that that can do on their family. And by allowing people to take control of their health, and if you are physically healthy, if 
you are have a lower BMI, if you're physically active, you have a, a lower chance of uh, cancer reoccurrence. And so if you can eliminate cancer reoccurrence, or at least make it less likely, that's an entire round of treatment, or that's uh, like all this time and money that would have been spent otherwise that you can put into yourself, that you can, you don't have to worry about when your next meal is, or if you can pay, afford treatment, or if you can afford uh, going to school, and things like that. Dr. Ortiz, Dr. Hughes, what's been a standout moment of this project for you, where you really sat back and thought, wow, we're really making a difference? While the, the others were speaking, I remember when Dr. Hughes approached me in Puerto Rico to do this project. At that time, my clinical work and my research was in, in sports medicine. And that was the reason why I was approached, because I had in Puerto Rico the lab to measure everything that MD Anderson wanted to measure. So, okay, I, I took upon the challenge, but I always remember one of the subjects of the project. And that lady was the one that actually actually stopped me from working too much sports medicine and concentrate mainly in cancer. I remember she was a 32-year-old 30, breast cancer survivor. She actually decided to participate in this project. And um, we were doing the testing and, and, and all this, and I like to talk to, I'm a clinician, so when I have the research subjects are, are waiting, having their break, I just talk to them like if they're in the clinic. And she suddenly mentions that, saying like, oh, I hope that I can get into the exercise group. And I asked her, oh, why, why do you, typically people don't want to be in the exercise group. <laughs> I mean, they want to be the control, not to exercise. But she actually mentioned that she wanted to be in the exercise group, and I asked her why. Oh, because I would like to get the energy to be able to see my uh, my son play soccer and for me to stand up from the bleachers and being able to applause, because even that is really tiring. I cannot even do that. And that lady, that experience, you know, I went from, from working with, uh, Olympic athletes in my country to think like, you know, just making this lady being able to go to a soccer game and cheer her boy up is more important. That, that is the, her equivalent to an Olympic gold medal. This started uh, in MD Anderson back uh, about the time Alexis and I got together. I was working with Dr. Lanahan and we were, he asked me to help him with a study on cancer survivors that develop heart failure as a result of chemotherapy. And it was a pilot study, and we had three participants. One of them died, uh, Angie. Broke my heart, obviously. But two of them did real, real well. And they were, when I say different patient, different day, I mean, one guy couldn't walk across the hall without running out of breath. So we designed an individualized exercise program. Had a huge impact. And uh, Dr. Lanahan said, you know what we need to do here at MD Anderson is we need to open this up to any cancer survivor that wants to come in and we can benefit him with an exercise program. And then he moved on, and then I moved on, and so that kind of died there. And the idea here is that it really is an opportunity for all to contribute, but all to benefit. And everybody has their specialty because this isn't an interdisciplinary study, it's a transdisciplinary study. So everybody's coming together, everybody's passionate about what we're trying to do. Uh, we're gonna make it happen and it just really, I think, is very, I don't want to say divine influence, but I think it's very uh, special how it's all come together and really under Dr. Ramirez's umbrella and with Dr. Ortiz and, you know, the big 10 policy that we have. And I, I think that I can say in all honesty 
that there's a difference between being involved and committed. And I think everybody that's part of this research team is committed. And if we don't make it happen, it's not because we're not going to die trying, but I think we will. Thank you to Dr. Hughes and his team at UT Health San Antonio. To find out more information on the study, you can go to salute.to slash IHPR or by checking out this episode's webpage, salute.to slash salute talks.